Welcome back to Drilled. I'm Amy Westervelt. Later this week, we will have the third installment of our series with Earther, looking at fossil fuel involvement in schools. But today, we have an update on our season five story. American attorney Stephen Donziger, who's been on house arrest for more than 700 days as a result of his involvement in the Chevron Ecuador case, was sentenced last week on Friday. This court has already determined pre-trial that Mr. Donziger, if convicted, would not be sentenced to more than six months in prison or a $5,000 fine. Donziger was given the maximum a six-month jail sentence despite having served, as I said, more than 700 days on house arrest already. It's the sentencing that Donziger and his team were expecting, and there are multiple appeals underway already. We'll have updates on all of that. Our reporter, Karen Savage, was in the courtroom during the sentencing. I'll be joined by her after the break. We also talked to Donziger in the lead-up to the hearing and spoke with a few other folks after the sentencing. All of that is coming up after this quick break. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Long time, no talk. Um, How are you? How have you been? You know, we continue fighting to, you know, get justice for the people of Ecuador and to, you know, make sure the lawyers, including me, are protected. Obviously, this has been a hell of an ordeal. I've been in house arrest for two years, two months um, on a misdemeanor. Unprecedented U.S. history, as I think, you know, ever given a lawyer convicted of this supposed crime that I committed is 90 days in home detention. And again, I've been more than eight times that already, and I haven't even been sentenced. So my sentencing is next Friday. 
Judge Preska, who I believe was appointed illegally by the charging judge in a case that was rejected by the normal federal prosecutor, she's going to sentence me. She has, according to her, she has the right to put me in prison for six months on top of the two years plus of house arrest. And we're going to go in there in good faith and request that she let me go home and be free, get my passport back and continue my human rights work. Um, this is this length of my detention is, is unprecedented, unjustified. I believe it's arbitrary and I believe it's illegal. Right. So much has happened um, since we've last talked. So not only the bench trial, the conviction and the upcoming sentencing, but you've gotten a ton of support. Can you tell a little talk a little bit about all the organizations and different folks that have written or expressed letters of support? Sure. Um, I have support, you know, from a lot of people and organizations that I, you know, just have stepped up because they recognize that what's happening to me is terribly unjust um, and that it represents really an attack on indigenous rights and indigenous peoples who want a historic pollution judgment against a big oil company. You know, everyone knows, I think, that looks at this, this, this goes way beyond Stephen Donziger. You know, this is a wholesale attack by the fossil fuel industry on the very idea of indigenous rights and environmental justice and human rights lawyering, for that matter. So they're really using my case to try to destroy the very idea that these types of cases can be done and that lawyers, you know, have the right to do these cases. And, you know, they're trying to create a situation where if I, if a, a lawyer, in this case me, can be detained at home for over two years for winning a human rights case against an oil company, no one will do the work. And the industry will have fewer of these types of challenges in courts, you know, not just in the United States, but all over the world. So there's a, a, an industry-wide strategy to the attacks on me. Um, they're being facilitated by two U.S. federal judges who are come out of the Federalist Society. They're very pro-corporate, and I believe they're abusing their power. And, uh, you know, what we're seeing now in the United States is, you know, the trend that sort of has been going on in other countries like China and Russia and Hungary and Saudi Arabia and Brazil now of, you know, authoritarian leaders using the courts and criminal cases, fake criminal cases to attack their political opponents. That's now happening here. And you see it in my case, not so much the government, but Chevron, you know, the fossil fuel industry has so much power now over our federal courts. Um, they are able to essentially take control of the machinery of the prosecution and prosecute me directly through a Chevron law firm, which has never happened before. So this is a corporate prosecution um, under the rubric of the United States government, but it's controlled by Chevron and it's really scary. So, you know, the, the, the very dangerous trends that I think threaten free speech, threaten the rule of law, threaten advocacy, threatened democracy um, are penetrating our country now in ways that we have never seen before. And that's manifesting in my case. Your case has been going on so long that when it first started, that had kind of just begun in this country. Um, but now if you look at all the states that have some form of felony protest laws, if you look at Enbridge that literally has admitted paying off law enforcement or, um, energy transfer in Louisiana that bought its own security in the form of sheriff's officers, sheriff's deputies, um, that in recent 
years or months, if you put together all of those things, it's a really horrible picture. Um, it is. It is. And, um, you know, look, the corporate power, particularly the fossil fuel industry in our country, in the United States, has never been you know, stronger. And it's just shocking to me that our institutions that normally are designed to check corporate power, like the Congress, the courts, the president, the executive branch, are pretty much under the sway of the fossil fuel industry in ways that people can't even see or I don't even think fully realize. You know, for example, in the Line 3 protests, the fact that the pipeline company is paying public police means that those police are answering to the company. They're no longer public police. And they're arresting, you know, protesters, including indigenous protesters who are on their own territory by treaty. Um, you know, ha- that is part of the trend. Chevron taking over the prosecutorial function in New York after the charges from this, you know, pro-Chevron judge were flat out rejected by the regular federal prosecutor. All of these things are part of the problem um, that you identify and others identify, you know, enhanced penalties for protesters trying to claim that anyone exercising their free speech rights around an oil installation could be charged with terrorism. These are all very dangerous. Um, these are all very dangerous developments that I believe threaten, you know, the rule of law in America and really raise questions about what kind of society we want to live in. You know, they are now going back and resurrecting this investigation in Ecuador. And I know you said you had just really learned about this, but why might they be doing that? Do you have any kind of theories? On- oh, I, I, I think that it's a desperate attempt by Chevron um, to come up with some other, what they would call some determination by some low-level prosecutor um, that might support their theory that uh, the, you know, the historic decision against them that was won by indigenous peoples and farmer communities was somehow the product of fraud. I mean, that's what they're trying to do. You know, the problem they have is despite spending literally $3 billion on 60 law firms and 2,000 lawyers and six PR firms and 150 investigators and who knows what else. I mean, they have websites up created just to smear my reputation. They spent massive sums of money. They have failed, utterly failed to get rid of the financial risk they face as a result of this historic court victory. So, you know, having spent so much money, they're down in Ecuador there's a new, you know, pro-corporate government, Guillermo Lasso is the president. He's trying to appease, you know, foreign investors. He's trying to appease the State Department, which, by the way, works hand in hand with Chevron down there. And part of this is they lobbied the um, attorney general's office to open up this, you know, bull BS investigation where they're literally interviewing indigenous peoples and peasants about a supposed fraud that occurred in the case. It's just pathetic. And, you know, I fully expect this to either die on the vine because there's no evidence or they'll just manufacture something and put out some report that Chevron's lawyers will write claiming they found evidence of this, that, and the other thing. But, you know, it's too late for that. The case is over. The, it's been affirmed by 28 appellate judges in Ecuador and Canada, including the highest courts, of um, both countries. 
So is there anything else that you think about your sentencing or what we just talked about, about, you know, what's going on in Ecuador now that you think I haven't asked or that's important that people know and understand going forward? Well, I I will say this. I I need support personally. Um, Obviously, what happens to me is connected to this bigger picture that we're talking about today. Um, But I also want to survive on a personal level. I have a wife and a 15-year-old son, and I want to live the rest of my life happy and productive. So if I would just ask that if you're in the New York area, please come to court on October 1st. We're having a rally at 8.30 in the morning, and then come into court and show your support. Um, If you can't get there, you can also listen in by telephone. You can get the number off my Twitter page at AdSDonziger. It's not up there yet, but we're going to put it up soon. Um, If Judge Prescott sentences me to jail, prison, please don't forget about me. And if you're around, try to come visit. I don't even care if I don't know you. Like I need visitors constantly. We need to convey to the authorities in the prison, the courts that I have a lot of support at all times so I can be protected if I have to go inside. Although I do hope it doesn't happen. I think, you know, I think that at this point, there's so many people demanding I be released. This, as I, again, I've served now eight times longer than the longest sentence ever for someone, a lawyer convicted of my level of offense. So we're going to go in there in good faith and ask judge Prescott to release me. And I I really pray it happens. And by the way, if, I suddenly become incommunicado as of like mid-morning, October 1st. You'll, you'll probably know what happened. Um, yes. But I will, be, I will be back at some point. And I want to also say, first of all, thank you to you and Amy Westervelt. You guys have really done amazing work to bring the story to the, to the public. And your, your, your journalism is an example of a check on the very forces we're talking about, an independent check that is all too rare now in America. You know, I will say that the big media, the New York Times included, CNN, have completely ignored my detention for over two years. They don't cover it. So to have journalists like y'all um, dig in in the professional, intelligent way that you have is a huge, important thing, not only to me, the people of Ecuador, but to our society. So I thank you for that. Um, and you know just keep monitoring and watching and you know if i end up getting incarcerated um i don't want to go to prison obviously uh, but i will go in and you know deal with it and come out Karen, you were at the courthouse today for Donziger's sentencing hearing. What what was it like? What was kind of the mood in the courtroom? It was tense. I can tell you that. And I can tell you that it went on seemingly forever. And I was not even the one being sentenced. So I can't imagine how long it must have felt for Stephen Donziger and for his wife and son who were also there. Oh God. I want to have you talk me through what, like what happened during the hearing and and anything that stood out in terms of what judge Preska said. Yeah. So a bunch of things happened. Um, first up was the folks for, um, Stephen's side and his lawyers just kind of went through all of the reasons why he, you know, wasn't, didn't need to be sentenced to any prison time. Why the time spent, on house arrest was more than enough, you know, not necessarily arguing that he is innocent, 
although mm-hmm. he, he, you know, he has never um, said he was guilty of, of that crime. But they just went through and they highlighted the letters of support. And so went through all of that, went through kind of the history of the fact that, you know, okay, some of the time Donziger may not have filed the correct motion at the right time or appealed on time or did certain things procedurally correct. But if you take a look, according to what his, his attorneys argued, you know, you have got Stephen Donziger working at his house, at his apartment. Mm-hmm. at the table and on the other side you've got a, a you know an army of lawyers at chevron's disposal of course it's not going to be equal um, right and then it was after the attorneys went Stephen went up and made a statement so which i think was really difficult for him i think the one of the hardest parts i know even just for me as a parent hearing was him talk about the times that he has missed out on spending with his son you know, just having to have the ankle bracelet on having. So I think that that had a big impact on him. One of the themes that through Donziger's lawyers and his presentation or his statement, one of the things the lawyers really stressed was that, you know, Judge Preska can't undo all of the things that have happened that that they consider unjust or that are just, you know, all the weird things that we've talked about that just don't make sense. She can't undo all of that. She can't correct them. But what she could do is do no more harm. Once Rita Glavin got up, she, you know, as you know, she's really deferred to the court for sentencing. She said that she doesn't agree with all of Ron Kuby's history of the case because Kuby went through the, he went through pretty thoroughly the entire case, which took quite a while. You know, she cited some points where, where Kaplan had ruled differently. And, and she argued that, you know, Don, Stephen Donziger got where he is based on not complying with the court orders. And that was really what she stressed during her whole time was, you know, that he willfully didn't comply with what the court said. He it, it purposely told the court he wouldn't comply. He has expressed no remorse and just kind of really beat home and stressed his noncompliance, according to her, with Mm -hmm. Kaplan's orders. So it was really kind of back and forth. He said, she said, and some of the same stuff that I think we've talked about before, where if you listen to one side, it really strongly appears that one thing happened. But when you listen to the other side, it really strongly appears that something else happened. I mean, yeah, that has been, that's like a hallmark of this case across the board. It's just, just that there's no middle ground between the two. But the one thing that seems objectively true here is that Donziger has already served effectively two years of a, of a sentence for a crime that comes with a maximum of six months. So was that discussed at all? You know, it wasn't discussed by either part, by either side. But then when Judge Preska read her opinion, she actually, and I think it would have been pre-typed before and she just read off of it. But what she talked about was that actually being on house arrest doesn't count as time served. Apparently being on house arrest is not equal to being detained according to the law. And, you know, she would cite cases and I don't know, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know all these cases. I haven't looked them all up, but apparently somewhere back in the legal system, they've decided if you're on house arrest, that you are not officially detained. And there was some discussion also Mm -hmm. comparing saying, you know, Stephen Donziger was on house arrest and couldn't leave his apartment. But at the same time, much of New York was on house arrest, you know, a a form of house arrest during COVID. 
and couldn't leave their apartments and couldn't do anything. And so he wasn't really in any worse shape than New Yorkers were during stay at home orders, which, you know, there's that one thing. so untrue. I mean, we got yeah, into that exactly. in the, like the first episode of our, of the podcast, right. Where he talked about all the ways that is different, including yeah, like mean, being woken up in the middle of the night, you know, every other week when the battery runs out and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and there, there's also, you know, there is what, oh, it's a whole different situation. You are on house arrest yeah. versus not supposed to leave your house. Not supposed to leave your house means I can run to the corner store and get a loaf of bread or a bagel or something. Right. I can go to the grocery store whenever I want. I can go for a walk whenever I want. Yeah. yeah. People can at least go outside and get a walk and some fresh air. during Right. And during most of that time, you weren't going to face any legal consequences. No. However, when you're on house arrest, if you decide to run to the bodega to pick up a bagel or you decide you want to go to the park for a run and you just go, I mean, there's a whole different level of consequence. So that to me doesn't really stack up at all. No, Um, no. So, okay. Let's talk about what the sentence actually was and how Prescott delivered it. So she went point by point through the contempt charges and, and some of them, she pushed back on the fact that he had, in fact, in, in her eyes, not appealed some of the things that he said he was awaiting appeal on. She went through the point where he went he purposely entered into civil contempt in order to be able to have an appeal heard and said, well, you know, when you go on to contempt, you don't get to decide whether it's civil or criminal. It was basically a straight upholding of Kaplan's rulings. She sentenced him to six months. And then I know that they asked for him to, to serve that time on house arrest. Right. So how did that go? It's this very, it's very confusing sentencing, I think. So um, as much as you can kind of unpack the, the two appeals that are now underway and, and what exactly it all means for Donziger. Yeah. So my understanding is that he will appeal the actual conviction and there's a new legal team that will take over and work on the appeal. And that's an appeal to the second circuit. So that I think is already kind of in the works and has been planned and there's nothing changing about that. And what he wanted was what's considered post-conviction bail. And they had filed a motion for that, which Preska denied. Basically she reiterated that she thinks he's a flight risk, that now that he's been convicted, he's even more of a flight risk. And so he should be detained, you know, he should be detained. And so she denied the request for bail. Normally what that would mean would be that the marshals who actually came into the courtroom, like right around the time she said that, and they were standing in the back. I was just like, wow, these guys are really moving in, but he could have been detained right there. Donziger, his legal team, everybody who was with him pretty much said beforehand, even he's going to get six months. So they have sure had already realized that if the bail request was denied, they would immediately appeal the denial. Mm -hmm. So because they now are appealing the denial of bail, he gets to stay out with the understanding that he would file the request for an expedited appeal only of the bail of whether or not he's on the bail, you know, is on bail or is not on bail Mm -hmm. um, within a week. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately in that, in, in that question, I believe the second circuit will make a determination 
and whether they say, okay, this guy has to stay on house arrest. Okay, this guy is not a flight risk. He can be free and stay in New York. Or this guy has to await the results of his appeal from behind bars is the second circus decision. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, wow. And when that will come, I don't know. I know it has to be filed within a week, but I'm not sure how long it will take. A few people I talked to after the hearing seem to think that the UN opinion that came out a couple of days ago would likely play a fairly big role in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, on a global stage, it looks pretty bad when this human rights lawyer in the United States is on, you know, is behind bars while he's waiting his appeal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it does look bad. Yeah. But that's the thing is, like, I don't, I haven't gotten any sense that Preska or the rest of, you know, the court seems to feel any kind of pressure from these, these things. Cause that isn't, I mean, okay. Yes. Now the UN is saying it, but there's been several international bodies and like, you know, legal oversight groups and things like that, that have said, this is clearly wrong. You know, she openly downplayed that she said she would quote unquote, take it for whatever it's worth. Wow. You know, she downplayed that. She downplayed the fact that Amnesty International had supported him. The downplaying of any of his supporters was very noticeable. Could you talk a little bit about the, you know, he's the type of person who's not going to get get it until he's, you know. Oh, yeah. So the most, probably the most egregious thing that I heard her say, and you know, in the context of the fact that he worked in Ecuador, in Latin America, up against an oil company. And you know, Latin America is one of the most dangerous places in the world to do any sort of environmental work. And she says that only the proverbial two by four between the eyes will instill in him any respect for the law. They actually allowed people to call into the sentencing hearing and we were able to tape this part of Preska's ruling. So you can hear it for yourselves. Mr. Donziger's offenses are extremely serious. Given Mr. Donziger's repeated willful refusal to obey court orders, it seems that only the proverbial two by four between the eyes will instill in him any respect for the law. She even blamed him at one point for running up the costs associated with the prosecution because he filed too many motions and too many, you know, requests for delays or this or that. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I believe still it's every defendant's right to vigorously defend themselves. So you talked to some folks immediately after the hearing. What, um, what did you hear from people? Yeah. So there was a, you know, everyone went downstairs, there's a press conference outside And after that was done, I talked with Paul a little bit, who really kind of put this in perspective. This is Paul Pazimino with Amazon Watch. Karen caught up with him on the steps of the courthouse just after the sentencing. All right. So, Paul, we're outside this huge courthouse. The sentencing hearing just got over. What are your, what's your gut reaction? Well, kind of as other people were expressing, I'm not surprised, but I'm no less disgusted by what I saw. And 
Actually, I am surprised by a couple things. First, Judge Preska, we all knew she was going to convict Stephen. This was a foregone conclusion. She said it in, in as many words when the trial started. And we also knew that she was working hand in glove with Kaplan, who, as Kubi mentioned, was not only the aggrieved party, but he hired the prosecutor, he picked the judge, and he's still a judge on the case. So it, it overturns any idea of our justice system, right? But what she did was she kind of thumbed her nose at the idea that this is in any way a bad thing and said Stephen should be hit in the head with a proverbial two-by-four. I mean, she literally said that after the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention claimed that his that what he's gone through is a human rights violation. Not only should he be released, but compensated for it. And she said, quote, I take that for what it's worth, which, you know, in my mind, I had images of her just like ripping up the paper and throwing it into the trash because that was clearly what she thought about that. All the defense kept going through my mind when they were when uh, Presco was reciting her her decision, her sentencing, that everything that they're saying Stephen did was in the context of hundreds and hundreds of other things that he was doing in the most well-financed corporate attack against a lawyer that we've ever seen, right? So he's going over the course of decades, largely on his own, because Chevron intimidated, scared, or bribed away other lawyers that would work with him. And you guys have talked about that on the podcast, so everyone knows the story. And yet, so this one guy, he doesn't comply with some of the orders, and they're like, aha, here's our chance. Let's throw him in jail. Let's turn it into an actual crime. Let's find the maximum sentence, find a judge who will say things like, let's hit him in the head with a proverbial two by four, and case closed. So it's, they, they're playing the role of villain perfectly. It's like it was written before. They've got to go through to the end. Now, my hope is that it's reached the point now that so many other people cannot turn their eye anymore. Like Biden, Garland, they can't pretend this doesn't exist. Too many people have brought it to them, too many respected authorities, and now that there's been a sentence, someone can step in and say, okay, this needs to stop, we're gonna pardon him or commute his sentence or whatever. But the pressure's gotta be on because he, Biden, for example, can't, I, I'm waiting for the day there's a White House press conference and somebody says something about the fossil fuel industry and a reporter finally asks a question, what about this lawyer who's been locked up? And they can't say, oh, well, that was a civil issue. We don't get involved because the U.S. government is now, is now putting him in jail despite the United Nations saying they shouldn't. Doesn't it seem like they're just pushing, pushing, pushing until at some point they're like doing, they're, they're doing themselves in? Well, I think, I think there's somebody at Chevron, honestly, who's thinking, what did we do? With Ka-? They created a monster with Kaplan because, as, as Kubi pointed out, in 2017, I guess it was, they won. Stephen was at his lowest point. And I know, personally, because I've been involved forever, and I, and I was like one of the few people that was still talking to Stephen. So many people, oh, he's toxic. He was found you know, it was confirmed. There's nothing can be done. We have to back off. This this was a loss for the entire environmental movement because Chevron was able to do what they did, and they couldn't just take yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they couldn't just take that win and leave it alone. But by going after Kaplan and Kaplan's that this also shows you the personal animosity that Kaplan has. This is a mechanism of his wanting to destroy Stephen as much as Chevron, 
And so someone, I think, at Chevron is going, this, this is not good for us. This doesn't help. Now that the UN is ruling about Donziger being a human rights a victim of human rights violations, that does not help Chevron in any way. And they've got to have thought, why did we let this get out of hand? But between Gibson Dunn, Kaplan and Preska and the other actors at play who've decided that like, they're going to elevate themselves by bringing Stephen down, they've created their own monster. And uh, you know, my hope is that that ultimately will be their undoing. Okay, I got worried when the marshals came in. Me too. Why are marshals here? Two of them. Yeah, I was worried they were going to take them right out. Typically, like with a criminal thing, is when they show up, you know, you're like, oh. Yeah. Well, she, she, I guess she exercised some restraint on not having him taken away in chains, literally, because she could have done that. But I think she doesn't, you know, she's so all powerful in this realm that she doesn't really need to. She can still deny him bail and stuff. Now, the real question is the appeal. Well, and the yeah. appeal of the denial of faith. Yes, yeah. Specifically, you know what I mean? Will the Second Circuit let him stay out based on their bigger appeal? Or will, you know, how will they fall in that? See, I think we have an opportunity to get to those judges with the stuff that's just come out about the UN and the Biden administration. If they turn to them and say, and this isn't going to be public, nothing's going to be on the record. But someone's going to pick up the phone and say, it looks really bad for us if you throw this guy in jail while he's appealing. Right. Just let him at least do that. They yeah. may not say, don't put him in jail ever if he loses his appeal. But I got to think somebody's going, we are now taking heat for this. It, you know, there was a journalist who turned to me today and said, I think it was um, James North from The Nation who's written so many oh, yeah. great pieces yeah. about this. He's like, this, this is the last thing that Chevron wants today. Look at all these cameras. And the, and the appeal of the bail, they do not want him to lose that because it will just make it look worse for them. As far as next steps, I asked Ron Kuby before the, anything started, I said, you know, what happens next? Is it conceivable that this is all resolved, whether Stephen spends six months in jail or not? And then the next step is we are all back in Judge Kaplan's courtroom for the next round. And he said, the answer is nobody knows. Nothing like this has ever happened before. And that's, you know, that's really the the case. No one at this point can actually predict what will happen. Chevron still has a motion out for some $60 billion that they want from Stephen. So where this ever ends is anybody's guess. And I think Stephen said it after the, after the sentencing, too. He said he honestly doesn't think this will ever end. Has he talked at all about what he's going to do? Because we covered this previously, but just to remind people, they also uh, went after his law license and, and successfully got him disbarred. So he no longer can practice law. He, you know, they're obviously watching for him to profit in any way or even have any connection it seems like to the Ecuadorians do you did you get a sense from him of, of kind of what he's gonna do from here on out I didn't this time but I do you know know that there's still efforts to collect on the Ecuadorian judgment in other places mm-hmm. um, whether or not that can ever go through because of the things we've talked about the international arbitration and some different things right. is anybody's guess. Um, but I think that if that's a possibility, I cannot see him giving up 
Um, you know, he said really clearly that he's going to continue, I think the exact quote is, but we'll continue fighting for the justice of the people in Ecuador mm-hmm. and make sure that the lawyers and, you know, people who do the work are protected. Mm-hmm. So he hasn't in any way forgotten about the people in Ecuador. In fact, one thing that he consistently, when I talked to him last week, and then again today, kept bringing back is that what Chevron wants everyone to forget mm-hmm. are the people in Ecuador. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, he constantly has that on his mind. Fair. So I wouldn't be surprised um, if he just kind yeah. of work along those lines. You know, there's plenty of things you can do as an individual who is not a lawyer mm-hmm. to to, you know, further human rights, to end pollution and, you know, to stop climate change and to do all of the things along that kind of work. Drilled is a critical frequency production. The show is produced and reported by me, Amy Westervelt. My co-reporter for this season is Karen Savage. Our editor is Julia Ritchie. Original score composed by B. Beeman. Our artwork this season was created by Matthew Fleming. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton. You can see photos related to this story, as well as several companion pieces on our website at drillednews.com. Researching and reporting stories like this requires a lot of time and resources. We appreciate the support of all of our listener members on Patreon. Your contributions are helping us to do work like this. You can find that link to support our work in the show notes. Patrons also get access to ad-free episodes and early releases of episodes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.